Okay, a couple of things in store for today. Um, what we've been looking at over the last, uh, what now, four, five weeks, we've <laughs> been looking at the idea about how the Bible is a big story, about how there is what some people call a meta-narrative, a big picture um, account of what God is up to. There's lots of things that happen through the Bible, uh, lots of stories, um, some find resolutions, some don't. There's all sorts of bits and pieces. The Bible itself is not all story. There's Proverbs, there are Psalms and songs, but there are also our stories. But the Bible itself overall is like a big story. And part of what we want to think about is not just to go through, I'm going to try to do the whole Old Testament today. Can you feel the horror in your heart? Get comfortable. I'm just going to fly through very quickly. I'm not going to stop to justify some of the things I'm going to say because what I want is a sense of the big picture so that when we go back later to look at different things, we have a sense of where things fit without us having to labour, I suppose, each time um, the whole story then find a, a particular um, point within it. What we've looked at over the last two weeks is the idea that um, the world, of course, is made by God. The world is a place full of creatures that are beloved by God. The world is a place that uh, stands under the loving, uh, I wouldn't say control, but uh, the loving superintendence providence of God, that God interacts with his creation. But as we saw, not everything goes according to you might say, God's intentions. Not everything is according to God's will. As we said last time, Jesus' prayer, the prayer that he asked us to pray, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, implying, of course, the things that are done on earth are not always in accordance with God's will. Things happen that God does not want. And that is what the Bible calls sin, missing the mark, missing God's intention, working against God's purposes. And so we're thinking about the Bible in the story of six acts. So the idea of creation was act one, that God has made the world. We looked a little bit at a couple of texts, mainly Genesis, thinking about what is the message rather than being distracted always about questions about science or, um, or other things. Because it's conveyed to us through an ancient Near Eastern worldview, something like 3,000 years ago. And if you think, well, that's... Yeah, how far ago was that? Well, just think about it in the opposite direction. Ancient Israel is as far away from us as the year 5000 is from us going the other direction. It's quite a distance. So there are things that where uh, the people of Israel saw things differently to us. They had a different thought world, a different culture. There were different things which were normal to them, which as we come across in the Bible sometimes seems strange to us. And so, but God's word is coming to us through that culture. God's word is speaking to us through what is often a foreign and strange sounding um, word. And so we need to not be afraid of that. We're not uh, just sort of rear-backing you, well, I can't possibly understand it. There are plenty of resources available to us um, to grapple with it and understand it better. But as often people will say is that we shouldn't just imagine we can read the Bible in every place just intuitively. As though we just automatically, yeah, yeah, we know what they're talking about. And I'm going to mention a couple of things when we talk about the law or the Torah 
today, which are different to the way that we think about the idea of law. Just to go back to our uh, yeah, picture here. Part of what we're doing here as well is getting a sense of why the whole Bible is important for Christians. Not just our favourite bits out of the Gospels, not just our favourite bits out of Paul's letters, not even just Genesis, say, 1, 2, 3, and then the rest is like we pick and choose little bits and pieces of inspiring-sounding words or things that sound like um, the Christian life, Christian experience. Instead, this is a story that goes through um, from creation, from the fall, all the way through to Jesus, and there is important stuff that happens, and we don't understand what Jesus is about properly if we don't appreciate what that story is actually telling us. Okay, the picture that we've got up there is one that I nicked off a, uh, a Baptist church in America, so I apologise to the good folk of Lee Park Baptist Church that this is a totally inadequate way of talking about the story of salvation. You can see there that basically it goes Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, whoosh, end of the Gospels, the end. And that does not encompass at all um, what we find in Scripture. And as we've seen before, we have a story of creation, fall, story of Israel, culminating in the coming of the Messiah, looking forward to God's final act of new creation, and then us in between. And so what I've done uh, for the next two weeks is we're dividing up the idea of the story of Israel into two different parts, rectification and redemption. Now, often when people talk about worldview-type stuff or meta-narrative stuff, we often say there's creation, there is uh, sin or a fall, and then there is redemption. So I've kind of pushed that out a little bit, as some others do as well, talking about there is something to come after the death and resurrection of Jesus and our recognition of that, that God is aiming for a final act of new creation, or sometimes called the consummation. And we are in between the coming of the Messiah and that final act. So we have received salvation, but salvation is also still coming. As Paul says in Romans uh, 13, end of the Romans 13, your salvation is closer now than when you first believed, because there is a final act to come. And that's actually the majority act. We taste of it now, we anticipate it now, we're confident in what is to come, we're confident in our participation in what is to come, but the main thing is what God is aiming for there at, uh, at the end. All right, so let's have a little bit of a look. Again, we're thinking about framework stuff. So, you know, we're not going into deep exegesis here, but this will be the basis sometimes of things that we want to do exegetically uh, digging our way through scripture. Okay. Now, when we think about that uh, story of Israel, we're looking at that's, that's basically most of the Bible. The vast majority of what we find in the biblical narrative is what I'm calling rectification, that is setting things right, and redemption, God's work to actually save us, set us free. And next week, when we're talking more about the accomplishment of Jesus, um, the redemption factor will come out um, a lot stronger. But I think we, in our uh, view of thinking about what is it God's actually doing for us, we often think about just the saving act in terms of being rescued from sin um, and don't think about either 
what is it that God's been doing leading up to that act? And also, what are we saved for? Okay, We often talk about salvation as being safe from sin, safe from death, safe from all these different things. Maybe I go to have a relationship with God, but for what? We talk about being forgiven, but toward what purpose? What does God actually have in store for us? What has been his purpose from the beginning? What is his purpose revealed in Israel? What's his purpose revealed in Jesus? What is the purpose that is still to come? And they all actually thread together. So we talk about God setting things right, rectification, making things right, and redemption. We're talking about the work of God to set us free and the whole creation from the destructive work of sin. And that work occurs in human history. It matters, the story of Israel. Christian faith and the Jewish uh, faith, which precedes it and continues, is not an esoteric kind of spiritual experience. It's very good in Margaret River to say that. Um, it's not about cultivating a kind of spirituality of some kind or another. That's At any point in time, one can actually uh, shut down one's senses and try to commune with the divine. Um, it's not something that happens in a spiritual transcendent realm. It's something where God comes into history so that human history matters. Redemption happens in God's created world. It happens in time. And so that's one of the many reasons that we need to give attention to the Old Testament and that as well as Christian scripture. And that story is not merely a kind of extended account about how bad people are. Okay, we could probably get that in about a chapter or two, I think. If you wanted to list uh, all the different vices that people have and so forth, and then we go, right, we now have uh, established that people are sinners, now we can jump straight to what's God going to do about that? Ah, coming of Jesus. There's more happening in this story, and it will help us understand what Jesus is all about. So the story of Israel reaches all the way from we have what we call sometimes the primeval uh, narrative of creation, fall, the entry of sin, pain, murder, more murder. Um, next chapter, actually more murder again. Lots of violence as the kind of primary manifestation of sin. And then the story of the flood, which is that uh, human beings, and this is like probably the worst description of human beings ever, um, human beings' thoughts were evil all of the time. Like everything was just always looking towards uh, some kind of either violence or corruption or um, making others suffer, exploiting people, etc. That's the impression that you get from the flood narrative. And that story tells us that God regrets making human beings and so uh, I'm going to remove them. But you have, in a sense, a kind of a second kind of Adam story with Noah. And his family will be the basis of something new. And that leads us to the story of Babel, where all the humans get together, we're going to make a great name for ourselves, we're going to like storm heaven, we're going to build ourselves a tower, probably like a ziggurat, you know, those big sort of uh, towers that go like that. We're going to get there and we're going to uh, storm heaven. And then the story, of course, tells us that God comes down to see what's happening. So they're talking about, we're going to go up and take up here. And it's like God's saying... Oh, there's something happening here. I'm just going to uh, 
make it out. So it's kind of like really lampooning this, this whole idea of human hubris and that um, somehow or another we can assert ourselves and uh, create a kind of kingdom of God uh, of our own, the kingdom uh, of man. And that, of course, comes to an end. And this is where we begin in earnest the story of Israel with Abraham. In God's pure grace, unmerited, as we like to say, God chooses to use this person, this man, Abraham. We're going to go through the whole story. But just to save us, the fundamental thing that lies at the basis of that is God's grace, God's divine initiative, and the idea of a covenant. And a covenant is not just like a, um, what you might say, a contract. It's actually more substantial to that, but there's a kind of an overlap between um, contracts and covenants. But the idea is actually to bring two parties together. And in this case, God is the one who, for the most part, is doing all the work. He's making all the promises and he's making a commitment. And that commitment is confirmed by an oath. And as Hebrews says, he couldn't swear by anything, um, so he had to swear by himself because there is nothing greater than God. He makes this commitment. And in making that commitment, it's like a precursor to where the story goes. And in making that commitment, he is saying, I will not let go of this people and I will not let go of the purpose for which I'm making this covenant, which is, as you'll remember, that you, Abraham, you'll become like a, a huge family, you have huge descendants, so I'll be like the um, you know, sand on the beach, the stars in the sky, a great number for the blessing of the nations. So right there at the beginning of uh, that story, it's not just about Abraham entering into a special relationship with God that he can enjoy, but rather through Abraham, um, blessing can come into the world, this purpose for all the nations. There's two ideas that um, I think come out, of, uh, come out of this, is that this is fundamental to thinking about Israel as well, and Jesus and what he achieves, and then what we're called to be and to do um, following that. There's a commitment from God that is completely um, based simply on God's choice and God's love. But there is a response that he wants to draw out of human beings. There's a response of faith in the promise of God. And as uh, Paul often uh, talks about that, this is... Um, yeah, this is the great example of actually believing in the promise. James tells as well that that uh, believing is shown in Abraham's actions uh, as well. Those two things don't have to be contrary. Within a covenant, though, there is the idea of faithfulness. Okay. Faith and faithfulness, both in Hebrew and in Greek, um, have the idea of trust, but also of fidelity and even of allegiance. Faithfulness is required between those two partners and God is in effect entering in on his own choice, electing Abraham to enter into a kind of partnership. It is the greater with the smaller and weaker, as Kierkegaard might have said, like, you know, there's an infinite um, distance between those two. But nonetheless, God is seeking to enter into a partnership with human beings. It's fidelity, trust, 
allegiance, and we might say friendship as well. Now, not friendship as in buddies, but friendship in terms that one might have with a king, that you are on his side and he is on your side, and also uh, beyond that, there is the question about how that interaction happens. Jesus talks about being friends with his uh, followers. You know, I'm the servants, I call you friends. Shouldn't again imagine that that is just um, getting to uh, hang out with Jesus, as it were. It's about an allegiance, it's about fidelity, it's friendship in terms of being allied, um, joined together in a common purpose and love. So reaching from that, uh, that story of the covenant with uh, Abraham and moving on down through that story, Isaac and Jacob, through to the time spent in Egypt and the Exodus redemption uh, from Egypt. That God does in fact rescue his people, the descendants of uh, Abraham, out of uh, uh, Egypt and then forms them into a new people. Okay, They are, um, at that point, descendants of 12 different um, uh, sons of, uh, of Jacob, but he's forming into something more. The 12 tribes formed into a kind of confederation, first of all, and then later as a kingdom under Saul, David and Solomon. When we think about Israel being formed into this people, we can think about a few different things. Firstly, how is it that they relate to God? How is it that they relate to each other as a community? And how do they relate to this new land they've been putting in? And I've just run straight over the top of the question of the conquests and everything. Sorry, Matt. Um, very interesting. No time for that. But um, this is a quote from a, um, uh, a German biblical scholar, which I love. And just have a think about what God's purpose is in the midst of history. God, like all revolutionaries, he says, desires the overturning, the radical alteration of the whole society. Think about Babel, think about the empires of Egypt, think about um, what the world is like in the setting of uh, Israel. And this revolution is right. What is at stake is the whole world and the change must be radical. We believe that because we believe the world is under sin, that it's subject to practices of idolatry and so forth. The change must be radical, for the misery of the world cries to heaven, does it not? And it begins deep within the human heart. But how can anyone change the world and society at its roots without taking away freedom? Well, when we looked at the Genesis story, see that there's an element there where God has left open the opportunity to work against God's purposes and that that grabbing for freedom, that grabbing for autonomy leads to a kind of unfreedom which is basically how sin works, does it not? I think we are tempted to actually do things our own way, to, to seek God's good gifts through our own means and our own methods uh, in a way that's contrary to what God lays out for us and we end up actually with a tainted um, version of what could have been given to us um, by God. So, how can anyone change the world without taking away freedom? Well, it can only be, it's reflecting on the formation of Israel, that God begins in a small way, at one single place in the world. There must be a place, visible, tangible, where the salvation of the world can begin. 
And that is where the world becomes what it is supposed to be according to God's plan or purpose, his design. Beginning at that place, the new thing can spread abroad, but not through persuasion, not through indoctrination, not through violence. Everyone must have the opportunity to come and see. And I think within that quote, you kind of have a sense of what God is up to in the Old Testament. And it might seem like, well, why doesn't just God like sort of bang appear in the sky or, or do something dramatic right there at the beginning? But history matters. Okay? A few weeks ago, we asked one of the questions, the worldview questions is, is there a meaning to human history? And pretty much, no, um, except for, you know, this empire gets more powerful and then collapses after several hundred years, perhaps, or a thousand years. Um, the rich get richer and then they don't. Um, <laughs> there's no real purpose in human history in that regard. There are small and meaningful actions, you might say, but is there anything in human history to actually say, this is what it's all driving towards? And if we look at human history, pretty much no. And then, of course, in terms of the big history of the cosmos, Maybe it's all going to flame out and uh, anything that we did didn't matter unless the creator is actually work in our world. Is there meaning to history? Is there meaning in our lives in this bigger picture? And yes, the Bible's claim is that God is acting in the world and he began in a very particular special way with Abraham with the people of Israel, forming them into a community to bear his purpose for the world it's promised in the back of their minds that they would be a conduit for the blessing of the nations. And so God, as we um, read there, gives what we call, uh, we somewhat or translate it as the law. Um, and as, uh, as it's in the uh, Old Testament, the Torah which is not actually quite equivalent to what we think about as law at all. And as Christians, we often think about, oh, law, law is bad. We're not under the law, we're under grace. So law bad, grace good. And actually, as we just saw there in Psalm 119, in Israel, the psalmist who uh, celebrates God's law, your words are life. Um, how much I adore your words. They're like, you know, food to me. They, I celebrate it. It's freedom. It's all, it's all the good things coming through God's law or better, the Torah. So what is it that we're actually reading uh, when we read the Torah? Probably the better way to, um, to put it, if you're looking actually in original Hebrew, is the idea of Torah is more like a wisdom category. It's commandment and wisdom kind of bundled together as instruction and that the fundamental actual most of the words that you find in relation to the Torah and instruction is to hear not so much like here's a command obey though that is in there the stronger sense as you go through stronger in the Hebrew is here's the words of God pay attention hear and live it out in wisdom Now, that's not the whole picture, but it's the dominant picture. But it also explains, doesn't it, as to why um, the Torah is celebrated in Psalms like 119, that actually to hear 
God's words and to follow his justice, to follow his judgments, um, is a good and life-giving thing. So the life of this community, as Deuteronomy tells us, is meant to be an example to the nations. It is meant to be that the community does not just bear the message, but it embodies the message. It doesn't merely declare the importance of justice, it must learn how to live justly. It must not simply speak of care for the widow, the orphan and the stranger, it must embody or incarnate that hospitality and compassion in material ways to others. And this is not a sideshow, this is fundamental to what God is doing in the world, creating a people for himself to bear witness to who he is, to bring forth blessings to the nations. So he is rectifying it, he is setting things right. Or if you want to put it in terms of what we looked at before, thinking about human relationships to God, that God's original intention is proper sense of worship and service towards God, that love between the two, under God's loving reign, his loving kingdom over all, that we are to uh, exist toward one another in terms of a friendship or community, fellowship together, and we are supposed to express God's loving dominion uh, for the world. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, it's about creating order also out of chaos. But then you can also think about... Um, Prior to the story of Israel, the little phrase that comes out of Acts 17 that we looked at a couple of months ago, where Paul talks about um, the times of ignorance, that God will overlook these times of ignorance. So for both Israel and also for the Gentiles, there is this time where, in a sense, God is, uh, holds back uh, elements of his uh, response. Because during that time, we have this idea then is that these three relationships are all distorted. So rather than showing worship towards God, we curve back in on ourselves and we are unthankful. We have relationships with other people, but there is a deep kind of selfishness that infects those relationships uh, as well. We look towards the world and there is a kind of sense of exploitation as well. So for Israel... There was a time of ignorance. For the Gentiles, that's pretty much everyone here, I think. Um, times of ignorance goes all the way, you might say, all the way through to um, coming of the Messiah. But now you might also think about what does Israel's Torah, its instruction, its guidance look like? God entering into a partnership with human beings, instructing them how to live, but it's not... I mean, you go back and look at the Old Testament and there's some fantastic stuff in there uh, in terms of the Torah. There's also some really odd stuff and probably mostly noticed by women, there's also some pretty disturbing stuff too, which I'm just going to make a comment on, but we're going to move on. Um, one of the interesting things that, um, in learning about the Old Testament law is that... Um, we sometimes just imagine that the Bible almost dropped out of heaven, that there's someone there actually writing very quickly as God is dictating a whole lot of stuff, which is probably more like the Quran. Um, and there are, as like the Ten Commandments, think about Exodus chapter 20, that got the ten words which God inscribes on tablets um, straight from God. There's a whole lot of other stuff that's in there in that as well, 
which is not law in terms of legislation, which is a foreign concept in ancient Israel. It's more what you would call case law. And it's actually an expression of wisdom and discernment there for generations to keep adding to and thinking about in order to create um, wisdom for kings to rule justly, for them to rule wisely. And if you compare it to other texts at the time, sometimes it looks very similar, sometimes it looks different, sometimes it looks quite revolutionary. But there's a lot of stuff actually that we also find in there that for us you think, oh, I don't like the sound of that now. Children block your ears. Um, so, you know, fighting, and then if a, a woman comes into the fight and grabs a person under there and crushes it so they can't have kids, well, she should lose her hand. And all the people said, no amens? Okay. Well, um, there it is in the Torah. But part of this is what we call case law. It's not, this has been dictated by God, this is God's word in that sense, um, but it is part of the whole package of what God uh, presents to Israel as the law, as the Torah, as instruction, but as a model to keep thinking and acting in terms uh, of wisdom. So I said I was just going to mention it. Um, I can point you to a whole lot of books about that. Um, part of the reason I say that is just because sometimes we end up defending things and back ourselves sometimes into a corner where someone will say, well, that is clearly unjust according to our sins and even the standards of Jesus. Um, and then we think, no, no, I've got to defend that particular two lines of case law because um, I think, you know, that's what God said. Not everything that is in God's word is what God said. When Paul says in the New Testament, for instance, I can't remember who I baptised in Corinth, we're not going to imagine somehow or another that was like, oh, well, God, um, what's God revealing to us there through Paul's uh, mission? Or when he gets a particular number wrong in recounting a numbers story. Oh, yes, yeah, so God actually wants us to update from 23,000 people there in numbers to 24,000 in Paul. Thank you. How the Bible is the word of God, complex question. We believe it. Evangelical Christians, we believe it, that it's God's word to us. But the way the different genres and so forth work and the manner in which God's word comes to us through a variety of different ways. Happy to talk about it afterwards. Anyway, um, the other thing here, I think, you can think about what Jesus says as well, looking back on the Old Testament about divorce. And he says the commandments that were given to you were because of your hardness of heart. Not God's ideal, but nonetheless, in the context... Here is a law to manage what is happening now. Not God's ideal, not his final purpose, not his original creational purpose, not his final new creation eschatological purpose, of course. And Jesus will, of course, say, here's how I see it, and, and it's different to, to Moses. You have heard it said, but I say to you. But the idea of what the Torah is doing is shaping a community, and it's not a distraction. It's part of what God is doing. It is part of what it does today with us shaping a community together. We live in a broader society. Part of our work in terms of our discipleship and living that out is trying to influence in good ways, not coercive ways, um, the world that is around us as well, to actually shape it in terms of learning God's wisdom by following his commandments, primarily the one to love. So the scriptures of Israel, they reveal to us say 
an imperfect path at this point towards what God wants. So life is set in the framework of these relationships to God, our fellow human beings, and to the non-human creation in the Torah. And we begin to learn again what it means to worship God. And it's a bit skewy. Like, remember the first creational one? It's like, here's how it is. And this is a bit skewy. How we relate to one another, okay? Again, a bit skewed. And how we relate to the land. Again, a bit skewed. And then we have the whole dynamic of how that works in terms of sin uh, as well. Following God's commands, following his wisdom, learning to live wisely and in obedience to God's uh, purposes for us. The canon of scripture and the practices that it details are to educate and shape the life of Israel towards earthly flourishing. And it also provides a means by which Israel can maintain a relationship in proximity to a holy God. That God desires to make a home among human beings in the garden. The idea is coming in and fellowshipping and walking through the garden with human beings. In the uh, wilderness, God comes and lives in the tabernacle in the midst of his people, which is very dangerous to have God so close. And as they go into the land... There comes a point as well, which we'll just quickly look at in a sec, um, where the temple is uh, created as well. And God's presence is to live or be present in a special way there, in the midst of his people as their king, their sort of uber king, the king above. But it's important to stress again, as we've said over the last couple of weeks, that sin and anything we talk about that, and even Israel's unfaithful acts or sins, are in the context of a gracious relationship established by God. They're not there to earn a relationship with God. God has chosen them. He's elected them, chosen them to be his people, given them a vocation to live out in the world. So the canon as a whole, this whole meta-narrative, is to help guide us in how we should understand all of these things. As I said, we often think about law as being sort of a command or legislation. It's not legislation in the Old Testament, but... Like, spoiler alert, by the time you actually get to the intertestamental period and uh, the time of Jesus and Paul, it had become like a kind of legislation, which is why you have some of the dilemmas and, and problems that arise in terms of the role of the law in the Christian community. So while we think about that as sort of dominant, sin is a breaking of a law requiring a penalty, the Old Testament actually presents a much more complex picture for us. Instead, we have questions as well of holiness, purity, uncleanness, which we looked at um, about a month ago. Wisdom and folly, which is a huge one. It's there in the Torah. Of course, we have it in Proverbs and that as well. Um, we even have a kind of counter-tradition holding that intention too. Wisdom is about living well in God's creation, living in the covenant relationship with God, with the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, um, and that if you follow that way, things will work out well. So we saw that in the covenant um, uh, stipulations there at the end of Deuteronomy 28, which we had read out to us as well. If, you follow, if the nation follows the way of Yahweh, if it follows the Torah, they will be blessed. Their enemies will be defeated. They will do well. The crops will go well. Everything will be really good. Likewise, similarly in um, Proverbs, if you follow the way of wisdom, things will turn out well for you sometimes in the Psalms. But we all know, Scripture also tells us, kind of counter to that, is to say, mm, it's not like a mechanism, it doesn't quite always work like that. So 
protest psalms. Why are the wicked prospering and so forth? Um, you know, over here, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or begging bread. Over here, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus later. We have Ecclesiastes. So on the one hand, creation is good. On the other hand, even the good gifts that we have have their limits and have a kind of futility in the face of death. Look at Job. I've been faithful, I've been upright, I've been righteous. And all everyone come around, there must be a reason for this, you must have sinned, you must have done this or that. No, this is all in the mystery of God and his universe. Um, wisdom can't always open up the reasons for these things for us. So we have all those things. We also have pictures of justice and so forth as well. Restorative justice, not just retribution, but God seeking to rectify things, make things right. And all of these themes are woven together in the account of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, even though it's, struggling, it's about struggling with the unfaithfulness of God's people, it ends up in a question of judgment and hope is that the project, you might say, of Israel seems to run aground. That the, northern, that the kingdom splits apart after Solomon, wiped away by the Assyrians, ten tribes, gone off into exile, two tribes remaining, bang, off to Babylon in exile as well. Israel has not been faithful to the covenant. The covenant curses Peter declared over Israel, have come true. But what's at the back of all this? At the back is a covenant with Abraham. At the back is a commitment to the world through Abraham and his descendants that would come a blessing to the nations. God remains, desires to make a home among human beings. There is hope that actually God might return them from exile, and the prophets all talk about how great it's going to be. But even that's a bit of a letdown. It doesn't quite happen. And you read Daniel, they go, well, maybe there wasn't like 70 years judgment, it was like 70 times 70 years, so 490 years takes us up to about the time of Jesus. But how is it that God is going to bring his people uh, back together? In making things right, rectification, God is seeking to construct and make and teach a community, his people, on the basis of his grace and his vocation that he's given to them, to live justly and well in the world, bearing witness to his works, bearing his name, um, meaning that his, God's reputation is actually at stake in some ways in terms of the way that Israel acts and responds. But there is a partnership happening there. All through the failure of Israel, you have this hope that maybe, for instance, there could be a righteous king. So we see David held up as an example. David, also glorious failure in the later part of his life. What's going to happen? What is God going to do? Israel, as his son, as it's called in Exodus uh, chapter 3, what's going to happen to God's son Israel? 
What is going to happen to that representative of Israel, the king, also called God's son? David says as he um, looks out upon the ark, sitting there in Jerusalem and says, this is just unacceptable. Here I am in this palace overlooking everybody else, king's house, always the tallest one in the city, looking down and there is the ark of the covenant. There is in a tent and I'm in this house, I'm going to build God's house. And of course God will never be outdone in terms of grace. He says, I actually don't need a house. Um, you know, you're mixing me up with uh, maybe some idols and so forth there. Instead, I will build your house. I will establish your house forever. And your descendants, they will be my son. And you have that in the Psalms about how the, uh, the king is called God's son. And of course, as Christians, we hear that and we can hear resonance of where this is all going to go. When we talk about God's redemption and his rectification of things, what I want us to kind of uh, grasp is that, again, the story of Israel is important to get to where we get to Jesus and, and why. What does it mean for God to actually have a faithful covenant partner? Where, if Israel is like the representative of humanity, the priestly kingdom, the priestly nation, and they fail in terms of representation of all humanity, and there's a sense in which there is a focus on sin uh, happening in the presence of Israel. What about the representative of Israel, which represents humanity, the king? What if that one fails as well? Where is it going to go? Um, but it's not that the story of Israel gets left behind when we get to the New Testament. It's not that all of that stuff about laws and how does the community work together and live together and so forth was just a kind of distraction to like, don't need that now, now let's just focus on Jesus. This is the story that Jesus is going to bring to its climax. All of life matters to God. All of life that God has created, he wants to flourish. Sin in the world has caused that to be distorted. It's worked against God's purpose of human flourishing, of creation flourishing. But in his work of rectification and redemption, he says, it's not about abandoning creation, it's not about abandoning his people, it's not about abandoning Israel or anybody else. God will continue to work for that purpose in history. If we skip ahead a moment, cheating a bit to Jesus often there's a bit of confusion about well what's Jesus up to for you know the first few years in particular of his ministry going around teaching people how to live you know live like this blessed are the peacemakers um, you know here's different stuff about forgiveness and here's stuff about actually um, uh, ripping people off like you know Zacchaeus and restoring people economically and all sorts of different things that he talks about Again, is not a distraction for time's up, off to the cross now. Um, and if you want to write it all down, good, but this is the main thing. The story of Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. The community where Jesus gathers around him, the Sermon on the Mount, think about Moses on the mountain, Jesus, the new Moses in Matthew, giving his uh, reinterpretation of the law. 
and the new law and commands and the new community which uh, he's building. Israel, bearing witness to God's name and God's acts, living in accords with wisdom and God's uh, desire for them to live well and flourish. Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the land. That's fertiliser. You are the light of the world. You are a city, a community, a city on a hill shining brightly to show this is what I intend for humanity. This is all part of making things right. But just rectification on its own can't pull it all together. In the end, there are things within us that work against God's purpose and we need redemption. But rectification and redemption work together. God is looking for his faithful covenant partner and he finds it in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the representative of Israel, which is the representative of the world. The story finds its climax coming in Jesus so, what else do we learn for our time? And also, how do we read some of that Old Testament um, Torah law, which is often strange? First thing is that this is not ideal. It's not ideals dropping out of heaven. It is God reaching into the middle of history, as God always does, and taking people where they are, what we sometimes call the idea of God's condescension, which for us is a bad word because we shouldn't condescend to each other, but God stepping down, stooping down, taking people where they are and seeking to move them from that place to a better place. It's not ideal. Not everything you read in the Torah is God's final word on a particular subject, as Jesus showed us. So it's in a context. It's a vocation, which means I take you from here and I want you to move towards that and it's provisional as I said there before the idea that sometimes what God gives is towards people with the hardness of heart but to take them to something new words alone won't do it it, is, it will take as the prophets declared not just tablets stone tablets of the law written on stone but somehow within us, the fleshy tables of the heart is the way the King James used to put it, um, that somehow it needs to live within us. We need to be redeemed and freed and changed and transformed and that is what is coming. Again, it's not about therefore discarding everything that's coming, it's about us being able to live in accordance with what God wants based on his gracious achievement for us through Jesus Christ and the sending of the Spirit. So today, choose life, put aside your individualistic uh, glasses. When you're reading the Old Testament, it is about a forming, as we've said before, a people for his name, a community to love and live together in justice. It is about following God's commitment uh, to us in his covenant. Thankful for that and living out the implications of that together uh, as a community. Next week, we're going to be talking about the good stuff, the really good stuff, about what Jesus achieved through his life and through his death, his resurrection and the ascension as well, the forgotten uh, addition there.